It's about shifting funding to education, to housing, to recreation. And we need to fix a lot of the problems. We need to sit down and reauthorize it. But again, spending more money isn't always the answer. But uh, all that is dependent on a budget uh, and an approach at the federal level uh, that says we care about all kids and not just some. The next thing we can do is we can invest in K through 12. I have a plan that is an historic plan for an $800 billion investment in our public schools. I'd like to have an academic discussion now about education. Mr. Yang, we'll stay with you. Here in Houston, the school district is facing yet another year of spending cuts. Like schools across the country, the system faces many challenges. We need to support the entire student, from their mental health, to their physical health, to their academic success. I have been here for 26 years. I am worth more than $15. It's clear that money is, and always has been, crucial to conversations regarding education policy in the U.S. Everyone talks about it, and yet little has changed. So why is it that public schools are still underfunded? School funding. It's a phrase that gets thrown around a lot by politicians, teachers, administrators, parents, and even students. In this podcast, we dive deep into the history of school funding. What does school funding mean? How is school funding being used or not used? And how can it be improved? And also, why is it important? To answer that question, we plan to center our discussion around how funding has been distributed inequitably along the lines of race and class. We know historically, the failure to produce, but also to distribute appropriate school funding has drastically deepened already existing racial and social inequities. Yeah, there is no denying that underfunded schools across New York City and the country are violently failing predominantly low-income students of color. And yet the changes proposed and implemented seem to either do nothing for these students or create more harm. So let's break it down. What does school funding look like exactly? On the public side, school funding is a blend of federal, state, and local dollars. Since federal funding is actually the smallest piece of the puzzle, let's first take a look at some recent policies. First off is the infamous No Child Left Behind Act, signed into law by President George W. Bush in 2002. This act followed the Elementary and Secondary Education Act which offered $1 billion annually in funding to schools with disadvantaged students in order to shrink the racial achievement gap. Let's take a listen to President Bush addressing the American public on national radio back during his term. In 2003, we provided $234 million to assist the lowest performing schools that need the most improvement. In 2004, we plan to more than double that amount. We have increased federal funding for elementary and high school education from about $25 billion in 2001 to more than $33 billion in 2003, an increase of about 36% and the highest level ever. Honestly, this sounds pretty good to me. What do you think? Well, good talk and meaningful action are two different things. No Child Left Behind wanted to ensure that states were concerned with raising the performance of certain student demographics, namely multi-language learners, special education students, and low-income minority students. In order to track this progress, they brought in mandatory testing. Not adhering to these standards caused schools to risk federal Title I funding. We could create an entire episode about the issues of inequity that come with tying funding to testing, but alas, time constraints. Because of these issues and rampant criticism of No Child Left Behind, the Every Student Succeeds Act, ESSA, was put into law by President Barack Obama in 2015 to replace it. 
Under this act, funding is still allocated to schools with the purpose of supporting four main groups of disadvantaged students. Students in poverty, minorities, students who require special education services, and students with limited English speaking abilities. And testing is still required, but with more authority to the states. Yeah, since ESSA, there has been some more recognition that sweeping generalizations about student achievement and school needs are ultimately harmful. Harmful to the same demographics of disadvantaged students that these federal funding policies have aimed to help. But clearly, this still isn't an equitable funding program. Well, things get more complicated. In the United States, local funding mainly comes from property taxes. Everyone pays taxes. That's not the issue. The problem with property taxes going towards funding is that the amount of money a school receives per student depends on the real estate prices of that neighborhood. So naturally, the most funding is given to the schools located within the wealthiest neighborhoods. So why are we still using property taxes to determine funding? Has anyone tried to change this? Well, actually, there is one court case that tried to. As we read in class from the driver reading in 1973, San Antonio Independent School District versus Rodriguez case was argued in front of the Supreme Court. Rodriguez, acting on behalf of students whose families reside in poor districts, challenged the funding scheme by arguing that it underprivileged such students because their school lacked the vast property tax that other districts utilized. And in the end, the court refused to acknowledge the 14th Amendment equal protection clause because in the constitution there's no fundamental right to education and according to the court the system did not system systematically nor individually discriminate simply put the school system basically said it is what it is some students based on where they live based on their parents incomes will have better funded schools by claiming schools are not quote individually discriminatory the high the highest court failed to acknowledge economic discrimination against low-income students But property taxes don't represent the full picture of school funding. They only account for about 10% of all education funding. Actually, since there's little to no federal control over school funding, a lot of it varies by state or local district. For example, New York City, one of the largest school districts in the United States, uses a specific formula to fund public schools. Let's take a look. Mr. Bloomberg, I'd like to ask you, first of all, what have you failed to do in the last eight years that four more years would help you accomplish? Well, we've made a lot of progress in the school system, but not every child gets the kind of education they're going to need to compete in the world. Honestly, I didn't think I'd ever say this, but Mayor Bloomberg said it best. Not every child gets the education they need. So how does the city try to address this through federal funding? Well, Fair Student Funding, or FSF, is the main source of money for most schools. FSF uses a three-part formula to determine how much money a school should be given. So let's break it down. The first consideration is the number of students at the school and the instructional needs at that school. Then they do this thing called collective bargaining related increases. This means they look at the cost of the staff salaries. So basically if a school had less teachers um, or the teachers were not adequately certified, which is common in a lot of underfunded schools, then the school would not receive as much money. And finally, every school just gets a base of 225,000 but a blanket amount for all schools neglects the reality that some students just need more aid than others. I think SFS needs to be reminded of their five major goals for schools. One, improving student achievement. Two, funding schools equitably. Three, making school budgets more transparent. Four, empowering school leaders. 
Five, aligning financial policies with the District of Education priorities. Wait, Lena, what was FSF's second goal? Funding schools equitably? Okay, so FSF sees that there's an issue and is trying to address it in its goals. But regardless, this goal hasn't been achieved. According to WNYC, quote, more than a dozen elite high schools get about $1,000 extra per student through the formula, which has added up to more than $100 million since 2012. $100 million for so-called elite schools? More money for schools overflowing with private funding? Underfunded schools are barely hanging on. Also notice the coded word elite here. Elite in the context of schools typically indicates the strong presence of white students and the inclusions, exclusion, sorry, of students of color in those elite spaces. That's a great segue to the next piece of the puzzle, private funding for public schools. Believe it or not, New York City public schools heavily rely on privately acquired funding. This type of funding can often put the nail in the coffin as far as inequitable funding between New York City public schools goes. Simply put, schools with large populations of students who are from more affluent families can ask families for hefty donations or at least consistent financial support. Parents in these families are often able to dedicate time and non-financial resources to their schools, PTAs, which leads to more socially connected and financially successful fundraising campaigns. Because in New York City, wealthy areas tend to be white areas, this private funding is a major source of inequitable funding along the lines of race. This is all important information, but how does it really play out in practice? You know, teacher supplies, right? Or teacher purchases is such a big thing in public education. I mean, I think there's, you know, there's gotta be some statistics out there, but um, I'd say on average, your average classroom teacher spends, you know, probably anywhere, you know, from $500 to $1,000 of their own money um, each year. And, and we, at least with the New York City Board of Ed back then, we would receive a $200 check each each year. And we would laugh at stuff like that, right? Like, you know, just it never seems to cover all the needs that, that actually really realistically exist. And so... Well, we all knew that, and so I don't think we got very caught up in hashing it, you know, around too much, just because it was it was what it was, so to speak. That was Margarita Mesa. We had a chance to speak with her about her experience working as a middle school teacher at MS Two Fifty Eight on the Upper West Side. Now, being a director of program quality and operations at Learned Academic Services, and a parent of two dogs two daughters, she shared her direct insight on what funding looks like in action. I might be a little biased because she also happens to be my mom, but I think that she really touched on a lot of the issues we discuss in this podcast and that we've grappled with during our semester more broadly. Ms. Mesa, my mom, actually graduated from Columbia in 94, completed Barnard's education program in addition to her anthropology major, and decided to go into education after witnessing the inequalities that exist in urban New York City schools for students of color. So far, we've spoken about the immense funding discrepancies that often exist between schools and school districts. But in New York City, these discrepancies can even exist within individual school facilities. Ms. Mesa discussed her exposure to these differences during her time teaching at MS258, where three separate floors in one building on the Upper West Side housed completely different student demographics who had access to 
completely unequal funding sources. MS-258, if my memory serves correctly, um, was known as Community Action School. And it was an interesting setup because it was a you know fairly large building. I believe it's on 92nd Street um, between Columbus and Amsterdam. And it housed at the time three schools, one of which was a very prominent uh, elementary school in the neighborhood. I think I mentioned to you, Asada, I think there were even a couple of celebrities whose children attended that elementary school. So it was known to be a good school and somewhat prestigious uh, as a public school. And then my school was at the top couple of floors of that building. And we were a small middle school um, serving, so a little bit of difference in demographics. So our population was mainly uh, Latino and African-American. Most of the students came from, you know, Harlem or East Harlem. Um, They definitely did not reside, you know, right in that local area. Um, And then the elementary school had a different demographic. I mean, it was definitely diverse, but quite a a large population of white students um, that did live in the immediate area. So just a different income bracket. Essentially, MS-258 is structurally divided in a way that parallels much of the inequality that we see in New York City's education system more broadly. The students in the building occupied by MS-258 are stratified in a way that Dr. Sabrina Zirkel describes. Highly achieving students in the more privileged PS-333 Manhattan School for Children are afforded access to modern equipment, higher paid teachers, and well-funded curricula, while the, and I quote, struggling BIPOC students, which stands for Black, Indigenous, and People of Color, and MS-258, at least at the time that my mom taught there, were left with limited resources and underpaid teachers. Didn't have a lot. Um, You know, I taught science and language arts. And for example, in my science teaching, I used to have to purchase, you know, most of the items I used for let's say, you know, labs and experiments and things like that. There was really never any funding for that. Um, we, we didn't have a science lab. Um, it was lots of makeshift, you know, carts being used um, and just, just not a lot of, of, of funding at all for anything above and beyond just like the textbooks and things like that. And as we mentioned earlier, the impacts of inequitable funding do not only come from the federal or state level. External or private funding from parents drastically contributes to the funding gap in public schools. I do know that working in public education, when you have strong parental involvement, you just tend to get a lot more. The parents obviously have a strong voice. They will ask for things. They will lobby for things. They will often raise their own you know, monies to pay for things that aren't being paid for by the Department of Education. Um, And so, yeah, that makes a big difference in public education when you have that kind of involvement. In her commentary on funding and inadequate resources, Ms. Mesa made frequent mention of the power possessed by, and I quote, involved parents. To me, the term involved often refers to those parents, largely middle to upper middle class, who have the means to financially supplement their children's public education. She provided a particularly interesting example of the agency that she had as a PTA president in my public elementary school growing up. I, I remember a lot of parents wanted a specific reading program at, at 
your school, which is Miami Shores Elementary School. And, you know, we were told that there was no funding for it. And so we did what involved parents do. And we raised money. At the time, it was a few thousand dollars. And, you know, we raised the money to be able to purchase it for the school. So in in our PTA uh, group, there was just a lot of that. There was a lot of just effort to made to supplement, you know, when things were not when things were not made available um, through the through the you know Miami Dade County Public School System, um, some other things that we used to do were sponsor really great trips, right? Science based trips to the Everglades and things like that. Um, in particular, for students whose families couldn't afford, you know, to pay for those special things. And so, you know, again, I saw firsthand how parental involvement can make a difference at a school. These experiences remind me of what Professor Maya Cuchillero discusses in her piece, Marketing Schools, Marketing Cities, regarding the Grant School in Philadelphia. Similar to the PTA member initiatives Ms. Mesa describes, at both the Manhattan School for Children and Miami Shores Elementary School, Cuchillero's Grant School case study also shows how students that attend schools, which are marketed to middle and upper class white parents, end up benefiting from new facilities and programming along with high-quality teachers and other qualities associated with so-called high-performing schools, air quotes. Overall, the contributions of involved PTA parents and private funding sources often supplement inadequate public school funding in certain schools, largely benefiting the higher-income white students who attend these schools. Because higher-performing schools are often privy to resources that are expensed via private funding channels, the deleterious impact of low funding goes under-acknowledged across the board. I think Ms. Mesa does a great job of speaking on parents who benefit from their privilege and from being informed about school optionality, especially when it comes to dictating the quality of education that their children have access to. It's a hard, it's a hard thing, especially from my vantage point, because it was almost at that point, like, you know, wearing two different hats. Like, I believe in public education. I believe in supporting your local schools, because if everyone abandons them, you know, what what remains behind is, is not a pretty picture. Um, and so it was a bit of a hard call for me, but I knew as soon as you both were ready for middle school and high school that I didn't feel comfortable relying on our local public schools at the time for all these reasons, because they're underfunded, because there isn't a whole lot of parental involvement, which, you know, tends to lead to like all sorts of other issues. And so I was a bit torn by it as a believer in public education. I knew I would still send you to public schools, but there is so much more option now um, as far as magnet programs, charter schools. And so I, I, I knew how to do the research. I knew what to look for. You know, I was a big fan of going in and touring schools to, so I could see firsthand, you know, what, what the actual school building was like and, and how they were funded. I asked those questions about different programs that would be available um, to my children. And so, yeah, I mean, I did a lot of research to be able to figure it out. But she also addresses how schools are not investing in or funding programs that help parents in marginalized communities. To switch gears a little bit, I was really interested in learning about the expertise Ms. Mesa developed while working at Learn It Systems. Yeah, um, I mean, every every state does this process a little bit differently, um, but just to kind of give an overview. So t- 
Title I funding, I mean, as far as I've been involved in it, it was initially the No Child Left Behind Act um, during the, the Bush, President Bush years. It is now called ESSA, Every Student Succeeds Act. Um, but essentially, as I mentioned earlier, the, the goal was that, you know, from a federal perspective to, you know, allot more monies to underprivileged, you know, communities where there were deficits, where it was clear that students were falling behind. And the goal was to sort of stimulate those schools with more monies to help support and prevent that from happening. And so from a state level, you know, states get particular dollars for Title I. Um, schools are deemed Title I schools based on, you know, their geography and the communities in which they, they uh, are located. And it, eventually, though, or essentially, the dollars follow the particular child. So, for example, the programs that I operate now, they're all in private schools, but children, you know, the students are eligible based on where they reside. So if they were, for example, going to, you know, PS2 in their local public school as, as their local public school, but their family chooses to send them to, you know, a Catholic school in the area, just based on the fact that they would have been eligible for those funds at their public school, they still receive the funds while attending their private school. And so that's the type of program that we operate. So, um, yeah, so those dollars follow the child and the state create, you know, has a whole formula um, based on, you know, whatever the budget is. It's an annual budget that is generated for, for this. And they do an entire calculation around the number of students that reside in, in particular areas. And then we receive something called an allocation. And that allocation is based on, you know, those numbers and, and just all sorts of factors. Um, and it's through that allocation that we're able to provide these um, academic intervention support services. But mainly to students, um, they qualify because they you know, are failing classes or they have uh, fared poorly on, on their most recent standardized test. And again, with the goal of bringing them up to where they need to be. Um, I mean, New York City, for example, I mean, their budgets for this are huge. I mean, just because, again, it's tied to the sheer volume of students. And so as the largest school district in the country, I mean, they, they definitely receive a significant um, amount of Title I funding. But Title I is probably the largest and has the most widespread impact. Notice how she says money follows the student when it comes to federal funding. Dr. Sabina Vaught talks about a similar district-level funding structure in her piece entitled The Color of Money, which we read in our class this semester. Vaught analyzes the implementation of a weighted student funding policy in the Jericho Public School System, a large urban public school district on the West Coast. Through a policy known as differential student funding, money in Jericho is attached to the kid with BIPOC and lower income students receiving increased amounts of per student funding. Yeah, I was actually really fascinated by that reading. Essentially through DSF, as described by Vaught, funding in the Jericho School District followed the child. And yes, more funding was allocated to the more disadvantaged children, but this made the district somehow believe that it was doing enough to close that racial achievement gap. 
And also, this funding was ultimately dispersed to cover the needs of the entire student body and didn't actually benefit the students who were in the most need of it, specifically BIPOC and low-income students. Vought states, and I quote, that JPS's DSF program appeared to fund students according to their need, but instead turned black children into a source of funding for special white programs in the school. Can we quickly define for listeners what the racial achievement gap is? Yes, absolutely. The racial achievement gap basically refers to disparities in average standardized test scores between white and BIPOC students in Jericho in New York City and on the federal level. Funding has often been viewed as the best approach to shrinking this gap. But this approach has been far from adequate. In speaking with Ms. Mesa about her experiences in public high school prior to attending Columbia, we realized just how little has changed for lower income by POC students enrolled in New York City public schools over the past three decades. I went into education, I think, precisely for these reasons, right? Because I saw that I didn't necessarily have access and opportunities to the types of things that I felt I should have had access to. Um, I even feel like, you know, you know, the story Asada, but, you know, when I was in high school and, and getting ready to apply to, to college, I mean, there was no, I went to high school in New York City in Queens yeah, at public or local public high school. And there was, you know, definitely not the type of support that, that I see now and learn later was so crucial, just even going through that process. I mean, there was like one guidance counselor, for example, for, you know, several thousand, I think at, at that time, or at least several hundred um, high school seniors. And we were lucky to even have someone like that to talk to, much less, you know, sit with and, and get support on the process. I was a first generation college, you know, student. So my parents didn't have a lot of knowledge about the process. And so that was just one example for me that, you know, I learned by that point that, you know, access to resources like that, you know, having a great counselor, having SAT prep, having support, you know, to even understand how to navigate all of that, you know, was, I didn't have it. And so I had to really figure it out for myself. And, and, um, and that was difficult to experience. I mean, I, I, I experienced firsthand the difference of, you know, when you have that support, why you can be more successful. I didn't even know about Ivy League schools. I didn't even know what those, what that meant back then. Um, and here, you know, here I am now as a parent, you know, so aware and knowledgeable, obviously, about all these opportunities. So, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, funding just brings a lot of extra things, right? It, it even speaking of guidance counselors, I mean, it can even increase, you know, the level of staff at a school. It can help fund, you know, different programs. It can help fund things like tutoring services for um, important things like SAT prep. I mean, just all these things that, again, you know, in certain communities are not made available to families very easily. You know, part of me wants to say that it's shocking to think that a lot of the same experiences Miss Mesa had in her high school years I also experienced being a Latina student attending public schools in the Bronx. From elementary school to high school, I always felt like I was in a never-ending race trying to find a so-called good school. And during those years, my standards for a good school were 
very low. A school that had, let's say, a functioning AC, textbooks that weren't falling apart, or even a library that wasn't used as a storage was a dream for me. So in that chase for a good school, I saw myself moving further and further away from my own neighborhood to the point that I was taking a one hour and a half train ride each morning and evening to get to school. And I wasn't alone in this. I want to say over 75% of the students in my high school weren't from Manhattan. They would come from neighborhoods in Queens, Brooklyn, and the Bronx. My high school was overflowing with Latinx and Black students all in search for an adequate education, schools with good funding, and schools that just, I don't know, cared. And honestly, Idri, that shouldn't have been the case. All students in New York City should have the option to go to their neighborhood schools and not worry about receiving grossly inadequate access to resources. I just hate to think about how many more kids, how many more generations, will also have to experience the same things. That internalized frustration of having to work twice as hard because I didn't have the privilege of attending a well-funded school. And that's why I really appreciate when Ms. Mesa shared some of her thoughts about how we could go about better serving the needs of lower income BIPOC students through more intentional uses of funds. Closing the digital gap is huge. I mean, it's unimaginable to still be hearing in 2021 that there are, you know, so many families that can't afford, you know, internet. (laughs) I mean, that just seems like unbelievable to me that we would even still be grappling with this issue. So I think right now, starting with the technology piece, I mean, this, the pandemic has taught us, I think that, you know, virtual learning is a thing um, and it should be accessible uh, by all. There shouldn't be a reason now that you have any student in America who's sitting at home and can't log into their classroom virtually because their family can't afford, you know, an internet uh, bill each month. Um, so I think that I would start there. I think that that's just got to, we've got to fix that. We've got to figure out how to even the playing field when it comes to that. Um, and I think there's just a lot of services that are needed. I think, you know, another big topic, which is less academic, but, you know, equally important is social emotional learning. And I think that we need to make a lot of strides in that area as well. So more, you know, just like with, with, health and, and the medical field, like prevent preventative versus reactive, right? Like how do we really, from a young age, give students the tools to manage themselves emotionally? And all of that feeds right into their performance academically in the classroom. And so I think that's an, another huge area where there needs to be a lot more funding and a lot more, you know, innovation and programming around that. Her point about technology accessibility has become more important with the exacerbation of the COVID-19 pandemic and its accompanied growing digital divide. Now, more than ever, the importance of equitable funding and resource accessibility has been made glaringly apparent, especially in New York City. So building on this idea of possible solutions, what can we say about what's happening now to address these inequities? What do we think should be done moving forward? 
To provide brief context over current funding struggles, parents, educators, and activists have tried to remedy the inequitable system in New York City for years. In 1993, New York City parents sued the state for failure to provide a, quote, sound basic education for all students in the Campaign for Fiscal Equ Equity, CFE, versus the state of New York in a lawsuit. After spending years trying to decide what a sound basic education actually is, the best answer the state could muster was through introducing fair student funding in New York City in 2007. But then the 2008 recession hit and the poorer schools budgets that were promised to be raised through the fair student funding formula were forgotten once again. The DOE argued that they were forced to reduce and stagnate funding at that time. There is no way they were forced to. They have money. And I'm just wondering, why wasn't school funding or funding schools equitably being prioritized? Well, that's a great question, Sophie. Unfortunately, with one with no answer. All we can say is that education for low-income children of color has never seemed to be a priority to legislators, and inequity didn't stop at Brown versus Board of Ed. It just became more coded. Fast forwarding to 2020, various teachers unions and activist groups have protested FSF's failure to provide billions of dollars to New York City public schools. One of these groups leading the charge is the Alliance for Quality Education New York a group that seeks to empower parents to see how much funding the FSF owes their schools and to encourage families to speak up to their local administrators and representatives. All right, so now parents are getting back in the fight. Like we said earlier, doesn't matter who is in office, all everyone seems to do is talk about funding. Few people are willing to make it a key point in their agenda once elected. Since 2008, the formula has committed to increasing aid within $5.5 billion in five years. 13 years have passed and New York City is $3.8 billion behind. Let me repeat that. $3.8 billion were supposed to be invested in New York City schools. And parents have a big question. Where is their money? Thinking of Now, in 2021, COVID-19 is having a similar impact on public schools. New York City has, quote, sustained a $9 billion revenue loss and is projecting additional losses in future years. Due to COVID-19, there will be more reductions, with this impact lasting far beyond 2021. Yeah, there are for sure going to be lasting impacts. Ultimately, this past January, Mayor de Blasio announced a preliminary $92.3 billion budget to close the COVID achievement gap. New York State would be responsible for distributing those funds to school districts. However, not all of this money is going to be used to reinvest in resources for social-emotional learning. In the wake of the pandemic, New York City sees itself in millions of dollars of debt. Programs are being cut, and the basic amenities that should be afforded to all students, like a school nurse or a social worker, are out of the budget for many institutions. Where does that leave us in the conversation for school funding? Much of what happens with school funding in New York City rests on the outcome of the upcoming mayoral election. Yep, and some, although far from all, of the candidates have included language around education funding in their proposed policy platforms. Yeah, and I know that Diane Morales, for example, has indicated plans for, quote, putting schools first in line for investment in the city's budget. And city comptroller Scott Stringer, for example, has announced plans to invest in improved classroom instruction. Several other candidates have discussed their proposal, but these are just 
two examples of candidates who have been more vocal about the issue of public school funding up up until this point. That being said, the conversation has been far from enough. As always, political action is going to necessitate pressure from community stakeholders, parents, teachers, and even students. Actually, a New York City-based organization called Teens Take Charge has been putting pressure on Mayor de Blasio to adhere to several of their education-based demands and plan on holding a mayoral forum where student leaders within the organization will make similar requests of the candidates gearing up for this upcoming election. As always, it will be imperative to remain attuned to this election in order to hold New York City's next mayor accountable, while also recognizing the limits of explicitly political channels to advocate for change. New York City has a tremendous amount of work to do when it comes to adequately funding schools in order to ensure more equitable outcomes for all of its students.